Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Race has often been a topic businesses would rather not talk about. But recent events have prompted American CEOs to write impassioned letters and to make public commitments to do better in redressing racial inequality. The 100 largest US companies have committed $1.6 billion to organisations fighting racism and inequality since the death of George Floyd. But that doesn't get to the core of the problem. USA Inc. today is dominated by white faces. African Americans occupy only a tiny proportion of executive positions in America's biggest companies. Businesses still have an enormous task ahead of them. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, Deputy Digital Editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, what can corporations do to tackle racism? If senior leadership were held accountable for developing people, mentoring people, sponsoring people, just as they are accountable for reaching certain bottom line business results, then I think we might begin to see some change. And the economic history behind racial inequality in America. Whenever there is progress towards equality in America, it seems to be almost inevitably followed by a racist backlash. While I've been fortunate to run a successful company as a CEO and co-founder, on a personal level, I'm an African-American male, and I very well could have been George Floyd. I very well could have been a number of people that didn't have sort of a camera recording them so that the world could see their story. And I think because of that, I just have an obligation and responsibility to really speak truth to power. My name is Ryan Williams. I am the CEO and co-founder of Cadre. Ryan's life story isn't that of the average tech founder. He grew up in a family of modest means in Louisiana. He then worked at Blackstone and Goldman Sachs, two of the biggest names in finance, before launching Cadre, a fintech and real estate investment, before he turned 30. I don't remember one conversation that I had with executives at either places that I've worked at in the past about racial inequality. And I think it highlights that this is a sensitive topic and subject for so many people because there's an element of really peeling the onion to understand why, you know, I was one of the first black men to work at Blackstone, for instance, or why the number of African-Americans going to Harvard, for instance, in terms of percentage of the student body has barely changed in 40 years. It's a necessary discussion to be had. You know, we have to face these realities and really apply the same rigor, the same fearlessness and intellectual curiosity we demonstrate on business problems to social problems. Because our world's changing, there will be more people that look like me in industries that have historically been homogenous. And if we don't plan on building a cohesive collective organization and society, then you can continue to ignore it. But uh, I don't really think that alternative is viable. For many people of color, corporate America is still an uninviting place. Vijay Vaithiswaran is The Economist's U.S. business editor. 
American bosses say they are now eager to make their firms more diverse. Vijay, what does the evidence show from your reporting about how much African-American and other minority employees are disadvantaged in American business? Well, if we look at the population makeup in America, over 13% of America's population and more than 10% of its college degree holders are black. However, only four current CEOs of Fortune 500 firms and only 17 ever in the last 20 years have been black. Less than 3% of corporate jobs and less than 8% of white collar jobs are also held by black Americans. And so there is clear evidence of something going on. And uh, that's where the evidence of discriminatory practices arise. The, The challenge, I think, to corporate America is to show what's happening here. We can see black unemployment, of course, is persistently twice that of whites. The black white wage disparity, whether you're a blue collar worker or holding a PhD, is not only large, but has grown in the last 20 years. So there's clear evidence of a systemic problem. Racism is a pervasive problem in society as a whole. I mean, not just in America, but elsewhere. But to what extent is business specifically to blame rather than the whole of American society? I think this is a powerful question. It's certainly true that there are forces that go beyond the immediate remit of business. A legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow legal discrimination in America that lasted after slavery have impoverished many Americans. However, if you look for evidence of discrimination at firms, even the most respected blue chip companies in America have been caught in the legal web discriminating. For example, Coca-Cola was forced by a class action lawsuit to remedy its corporate practices. We saw Starbucks in 2018, generally seen as a very progressive company, shut down all of its coffee outlets in America to train workers on racial sensitivity after there was a national scandal arising from the ejection of black patrons from an outlet in Philadelphia. And Texaco, an oil giant that has now become part of Chevron, had to pay $176 million to settle a racial discrimination lawsuit in 1996 and brought in a new chief diversity officer at that time, Angela Vallot, to help them get better. I joined Texaco in 1997, about six months after the settlement of a racial discrimination lawsuit that was brought by African-American employees in the company. At the time, it was the largest ever settlement of a racial discrimination lawsuit, $176 million. African-American employees filed a class action lawsuit alleging discrimination on the basis of pay, promotions, and other disparities. It was a huge story at the time that made front page news all over the world because Texaco was the third largest corporation in the world. It wasn't just the $176 million settlement, but it was the fact that white male managers at Texaco were caught on tape talking about the class action lawsuit. And they used the N-word in talking about African-American employees. And they talked about African-American employees as being like black jelly beans stuck at the bottom of the jelly bean jar. And that's why they didn't get promoted. Texaco lost a billion dollars, $1 billion in market capital in about a 24-hour period, its share price began to plummet. So the CEO had no choice but to step up and sort of end the, the, the bloodletting, if you will. And that began a journey of really trying to put in place policies, practices, and procedures to make the company more equitable. I had the occasion to meet the CEO of Texaco at a conference, and I was a lawyer and was trying to bring them into my firm as a client. And ironically, rather than ending up with a client, I ended up with a job as the first chief diversity officer of Texaco. And that was a relatively new position at the time. After that, the hiring of chief diversity officers 
proliferated, but at that time there were very few people in that position. Texaco made a lot of progress because of course it was in the spotlight and under the gun to make real change. How does discrimination affect the performance of businesses themselves? Is there a business case for change, not just a moral imperative? There's a growing body of evidence that diverse companies outperform and that companies that allow and encourage discrimination are suffering. For example, there is evidence from the academic literature that people who are managers are willing to give up 8% or so of company profits in order not to work with people of a different ethnic group. In other words, discriminators are willing to sacrifice results in order not to work in a fair-minded way. That's clearly not in the interests of shareholders. When we look at the other side of the ledger, there's a growing body of evidence that diverse companies and diverse teams are much better at innovation, for example. And we see work from McKinsey, which has done extensive work across countries over many years. And they find that racial diversity, particularly even more than gender diversity, is related to outperformance on profits. They've documented this year by year. The top quartile of firms, when measured on employee diversity, outperform the average company by significant metrics like operating margins. And so I think there is increasing performance metrics, I can say, to CEOs and boards. This is something you need to take seriously or else your shareholders, your owners, are going to start asking hard questions. So a good case for diversity in business is made by Peter Blair Henry, who's a professor of economics and finance at NYU Stern. There's now a large body of overwhelming evidence, much of which was pioneered by my my late colleague, Kathy Phillips, who is a professor at Columbia University, that shows that diverse teams outperform non-diverse teams in just about every way you can think of. And so the first point that I have tried to make in all that I do is that we're talking about excellence, right? There are equity issues, equity reasons for promoting diversity, but to me, the leading reason to push for more diversity is we want more excellence. And so I've tried to carry that banner, whether it be in academia, whether it be in the policy advising work that I've done, and also in the work that I've done advising the corporations I've been fortunate enough to be associated with. Vijay, if we can turn to practical things that can be done to improve matters, what are the most effective steps that companies can take? I think companies can start by stopping doing a few things. Among other things, the first is to stop the illusion of meritocracy. Most bosses don't see themselves as racist, but they see themselves as meritocratic. The cream rises. The best people are the ones that are promoted. I think is how most leaders in American business would describe their companies. And yet, when you look at the metrics, the numbers, that doesn't seem to be the case. And that's because there is no real meritocracy. What lots of studies show is that managers, especially middle managers, who are away from the immediate scrutiny of the C-suite, of the big bosses, they tend to prefer people that are like themselves, so-called affinity bias. And so the best assignments tend not to go to people who are different from them. And if you're not given the opportunity to shine, what happens is when it comes time for performance reviews, people who look similar to or of the same ethnic group of the leading managers, they tend to be the ones that get promoted based on performance. Doesn't sound like racism, it's really merit, right? But in fact, the opportunities were not given to others. Another example of what not to do is not to let progress in hiring women, which has been pretty good in corporate America. There are more women in positions of power in the C-suite and on boards. What companies tend to do is because the conversation on race is harder to have than the conversation on gender, they tend to muddle together statistics and in fact, not even talk about racial categories, but to lump together a diverse city conversation and say, look, we have a woman on our board. We are diverse. We don't have a diversity problem. And that's an obstacle to progress as well. If you want to make progress on race, particularly with the great underrepresentation on African-Americans, you have to 
do several things. First is focus on it, actually talk about it, break out your statistics on the issue of race, which many companies do not do. Almost no company publishes this this data. This is kept secret and held close to their chest. But even internally, they don't break it out or analyze it. So they need to have some targets internally for their managers to say, look, you need to do better on this. And when they don't, for example, to ask, why didn't you do better on promoting people from disadvantaged minorities? Why are there all of our talented African-American professionals? Why have they left after just a couple of years? You need to ask hard questions and keep, keep it accountable. Angela Velo argues that people at the top should be held more accountable. There needs to be some accountability attached to progress on diversity. Yes, numbers are sometimes transparent and sometimes they're not. There are many organizations that do not publicly report their demographics. Or what happens is if they do report it, it's rolled up as people of color. It's not broken out or not shared publicly what the breakdown is within that people of color demographics. So in other words, you need to break out what percentage of the population are African-American versus Asian, because often the number for people of color is sort of inflated because Asians have historically done better in some of these positions. So I think you have to create more transparency around the number, break it out by ethnic diversity. And I think companies need to look at how do you create accountability for getting those numbers up. If senior leadership were held accountable for developing people, mentoring people, sponsoring people, just as they are accountable for reaching certain bottom line business results, then I think we might begin to see some change. Professor Henry also gave examples of how companies can make real change. If Amazon says to the governor of the state of Washington and or the mayor of Seattle, if you don't address police brutality, we're moving out of the state of Washington, we're moving out of Seattle, officials, elected officials will pay, will pay attention to that. And so corporations need to do the right thing. They need to speak out against brutality clearly, and then they need to back that up with actions and to put pressure on local officials to make changes and to hold people accountable. So that's number one. We can't lose sight of that fact. Corporations should have, advocate to make voting simple, safe, and convenient. Right. Again, that's a matter of, uh, you know, using, you know, whatever dollars they use to lobby national officials to make it easy for their stakeholders, namely their employees, to vote. Corporations can make, you know, national elections a holiday. So it's easy for their employees to vote. I don't want to pretend like change is going to be something that's easy because real enduring change is going to require sacrifice. Ryan Williams again. It's going to require someone doing something or giving up something that won't be comfortable. But I think that's at this stage in, uh, in our world, that's what I think we have to confront, whether it's board representation and companies making permanent changes at the board level, increasing diversity in real positions of power. That's going to mean that someone else has to come off the board. But I think doing things the same way we've been doing them in finance and in these industries that have been stodgy, traditional, slow to change isn't going to work anymore. A number of the CEOs of leading companies in America have come out saying they've been outraged by events of recent weeks at the problems that African-Americans face in American business, as well as with police violence and inequity in society. And they've made a number of commitments to help. This is going to be a problem for them if this turns out to be so-called race washing, just saying some pleasing things at a moment of crisis and a few months down the road if they don't follow up. I think there has been a great awakening, certainly amongst those who follow corporate America. And we see activist groups, but also we see employees who tend to be younger now 
more aware of social issues are pressing companies to behave and follow through with actually what promises are being made at the top. And we're going to see shareholders and the big funds like BlackRock and some of the others are beginning to take more interest in this as part of their broader environmental, social and governance goals. So I think we're going to find owners like those big funds say, because we see better results when companies are more diverse, we'd like to see progress on this front as well. And I think those are multiple areas in which CEOs who've tended to say nice things but never follow through are likely to be held to account this time around. Thank you, Vijay. Thank you. Coming up, the economic history of African-Americans' long struggle for equality. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police has focused a lot of minds all over the world on these glaring and stubborn racial inequalities that plague America. Ryan Avent writes Free Exchange, the weekly economics column at The Economist. But I think one thing to keep in mind as we look at history is that whenever there is progress towards equality in America, it seems to be almost inevitably followed by a racist backlash. Ryan, how wide today is the racial gap between white people and black people in America? It is still incredibly and frustratingly wide. You see this gap as you look across uh, all sorts of uh, economic and social variables. But just to give you a sense, if you look at the income of the median black household, its annual income is about 60% of the typical white household. If you look at wealth, the median white American has a net worth about 10 times of the typical black American. And I think the really frustrating thing is that these gaps tend not to change very much over time. So the, the wealth gap really hasn't moved much over the past 30 years. What were the initial economic effects of the end of the Civil War and the abolition of slavery? In the immediate aftermath of the war, you have this period which historians call Reconstruction, when many of the southern states were still occupied by the U.S. Army. Freed black men were given the vote, and that translated into a large number of elected officials who were black, many more elected at the time than were in any subsequent period of history, including the present moment. Research by an economist called Trevin Logan of Ohio State notes that where black politicians were elected, that led to a pretty significant increase in tax revenue raised per person. Black politicians tended to direct that money toward education and land redistribution. Black workers were much more likely to have outright land tenancy uh, than they were to work as sharecroppers, which is a pretty expensive exploitative institution, literacy rates were significantly higher. And so you could sort of imagine how if this process had been allowed to continue, maybe a lot of the gaps that we see today wouldn't be as pronounced. How did it all go wrong for black Americans after that? In the South, among whites, there was quite stiff resistance to occupation by the army, by the effort to create equal rights for black Americans. And so there was basically a guerrilla warfare campaign that was mounted. The Northern Republicans that were interested in rebuilding the South in a more equitable way eventually kind of lost their appetite for it. There was just this horrific backlash, which was led by Southern whites, which led to mass disenfranchisement and essentially the creation of this apartheid Jim Crow regime. 
The end of Reconstruction and the political reversals in the South had negative effects for economic activity and opportunity for Black Americans. Lisa Cook, an economist at Michigan State University, studied the effect of racial violence in the South after Reconstruction from 1870 or so all the way up to 1940. And over this period, there were periodic outbreaks of violence directed at Southern Blacks. There were race riots, there were lynchings. In addition to the direct suffering they caused, they also really limited black opportunity. And she focuses on innovative activity, specifically on patents filed by Southern black Americans. And what she finds is that violent outbreaks dramatically reduced patent filings. And if you add that all up over the period from 1870 to 1940, you wind up with a number of, of about 1,100 missing patents that weren't filed, that weren't realized because of the oppression of black Americans. And it's really disappointing to think about, both in terms of the effect that it might have had on productivity for American manufacturing and agriculture, but also, again, the opportunity that these black Americans did not have to realize their potential, to contribute to American growth, and to close that gap in terms of opportunity and achievement between black Americans and white Americans. The response among a lot of freed blacks was to say to hell with this and to move to northern cities where there was a much larger industrial base, there was much more opportunity. And this begins to happen in the latter part of the 19th century, but it really picks up in earnest during the First World War because there was a labor shortage across much of the north. And at the same time, the flow of immigrants from Europe was interrupted. And so you had white manufacturers from the north coming down to the south to recruit workers. Another three million men were at work in U.S. war industries. The biggest job was steel, and more steel. Steel for the big shell, more steel for the big And gun. this really touched off this phase of history that we call the Great Migration, in which over six million black Americans left the South and moved to northern cities. And the initial effect of this migration on the welfare of black workers was profound. It led to an enormous increase in the earning potential of black workers, especially black men. There's been quite a lot of research looking at how white communities responded to black migration northward. What we see first and foremost is the emergence of this phenomenon called white flight, where as black Americans move into center cities and in, in the north, white families move to the suburbs. In the early 1900s, between two and four white residents tended to leave for each black arrival from the south. This actually continues into the post-war period. As the tax base left, cities were, were less able to provide critical services like education, like public safety. White Americans also demanded increases in policing and in rates of incarceration as this occurred. This white reaction to the Great Migration is really something that takes us to kind of where we are today, to these persistent gaps and also this oppressive policing that overwhelmingly affects black Americans. If you look at any of the significant gaps that we have today in terms of income and wealth, but especially in terms of mobility, of the ability of children born to disadvantaged black families to rise in the income distribution compared with mobility rates for whites, all of those things are linked to these past episodes. Places that had more past discrimination, had more racial violence in the past, tend to have lower mobility today. You really can't understand this particular moment and the frustration that so many Black Americans feel without looking back at this long history in which every time there was a moment of hope and a moment of possibility for Black Americans, there was a racist backlash, which limited their ability to take full advantage of their potential. Brian, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. That's all for this episode of Muddy Talks. For more analysis on this story and the power of protest, subscribe go to economist.com slash podcast offer. You'll get the best introductory offer wherever you are around the world.
That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in our show notes. And if you like the show, don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Patrick Lane. In London, this is The Economist.